Ready to take a deeper look at where history, politics, and economics all intersect? Well, then you've come to the right place. Each week, here's where we pull back the headlines and focus on the big trends, the stuff that actually shapes our future. Through the noise, we focus on the signal. I'm your host, Neil Howe, and this is Demography Unplugged. Today is June 17, 2020, and this is Demography Unplugged. Welcome back, everyone. As we did last week, I have on my podcast my fellow analyst, Christian Ford. Hi, Christian. Hi, Neil. How are you doing? How's everything? And uh, you're still in Maine? Uh, nicely locked still down? Still in Maine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, someday you'll return uh, down here to the nation's capital. We'll wait for that to happen. Um As always, uh, let me mention up front that if you want to dive deeper into everything we talk about on this podcast, please consider subscribing to our research product, Demography Unplugged, which I put together with my team at Hedge Risk Management, uh, folks like Christian himself. Google it. Uh, Among other things, you will be able to get our newswire, watch my uh, weekly or biweekly show on COVID-19. We have special interviews with guests and all the rest. This week, uh, uh, speaking of guests, uh, we have actually a a different format today. This week, uh, the way we're going to deviate is that Christian and I will spend a couple of minutes going over uh, the market data, a few bits of market data and and some uh, economic reports. And then I'm going to devote the rest of this podcast to replaying an interview I just did this morning with J.T. Taylor, the director of Hedgeye's politics sector and all-around insider here, here on Capitol Hill. Uh, the title of our presentation was, and I, I hope I recollect uh, correctly, Christian, the election of 2020 pandemic protests and polls. Uh, PPP. I think PPP, that's <laughs> right. And not to be confused with the stimulus, although we do cover the <laughs> stimulus. Uh, that's part of our, the presentation. It's wide-ranging. It covers everything from the national mood, everything from the pandemic lockdown to uh, the uh, George Floyd demonstrations and, and uh, the how people feel about Trump. And obviously it covers the fact that the approval ratings and the, uh, the future markets are really tipping uh, against Trump over the last few weeks. No question about it. We examine still where his battleground states are, where he stands. He actually right now... Probably if we held the election tomorrow, uh, he might he might not win any of his of his uh, t- 2016 battleground states. We'll also be looking at the all important Senate races uh, because that is where the real action is going to be. Uh, who's going to control the Senate? I would say two months ago, no one thought the Senate was going to be in play. Now it is in play, and the odds of a big new extra stimulus package being passed before the end of July. Uh, but so that's what we're going to do today. It's I think uh, it, it'll last a while. But uh, before we get into it, uh, maybe we can just say a few quick things about markets, Christian. Yes. Well, over the last five trading days, the S&P 500 is down 2.6 percent and the global down Dow is down 5.7 percent. And as for the VIX, we are finally out of that upper 20 range and yesterday the VIX closed at 33.67. Now last week Neil there was two occasions on Thursday and Friday that the VIX actually went up past 40. Wow so a uh, little bit of that uh, March madness coming back into the markets uh, <laughs> as right. I remember it was up in the low 80s right. Um, yes. <laughs> that is uh, that's really interesting. As as we saw the again this time the the, the world the rest of the world's going down you know more than uh, the S and P five hundred. Uh, last week the news was mostly uh, mostly good, uh, especially the retail number, which we're going to look at. Uh, but I think and clearly the the market's getting uh, spooked by some other possibilities. But maybe we should look first at uh, at. I think the retail number is probably the biggest thing that came out last week. Is that right for the U.S.? Right. So retail month over month for May was plus 17.7%. This is the biggest rise on record. If you remember from April, it was down 147 Which was the biggest decline on record. Right. Right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Uh, so 
it's 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 still though down. It's probably down by somewhere you know seven, eight, nine per, uh, percentage points. Uh, you have some rebound spending, right? People you know buying stuff right. that they wanted to buy but haven't been able to buy for a while. We saw some of that in China. Consumers are obviously getting back into stores. Uh, I would say people are beginning to talk about a more V-shaped recession than originally we talked about. It's really hard to tell at this point, though, I would say, because the decline was so massive uh, in, in, uh, in April that even this dramatic resurgence still leads us, still leaves us, uh, you know, 10 percentage points down, which historically would be considered a massive recession. So we, we're all disoriented, I think, by what's going on. And, and we, all re- we also have these other things hanging over us, right? I would say the two big caveats right now are uh, the possibility of rising infection rates, bringing back the lockdowns. Um, I should remind people, uh, those who don't follow our, our COVID updates, uh, roughly half of U.S. states now have rising infection rates. Uh, and just, just to remind us that no part of the world is immune, Beijing has gone into wartime mode. They've gone as what they sometimes call a soft lockdown. They sealed off the city. They've closed the schools. And as always now with China, it's really interesting. The new virus, you get this, Christian, the new virus has been linked to imported salmon on cutting boards. You know, this is the markets, the big open air markets uh-huh. they have in Beijing. Imported salmon from Europe, right? And I always have to remark that wherever outbreaks break out in China now, <laughs> the the trigger is always some foreigner or some foreign thing, right? It's it's like clockwork. Right. You can count on it, right? It's we would be okay if it weren't for these foreigners now constantly contaminating us. Uh, but it is it is interesting. Uh, uh, it just you know that kind of propaganda aside, that China does respond much more vigorously to even a relatively small number of infections, maybe a couple of hundred. Uh, uh, much more emphatically than we do. And the strategy, as I've talked about many times on this program, is containment. And that strategy is based on responding very vigorously to even minor uh, outbreaks so that you will be, um, you know, so that you don't <laughs> you don't have to do anything even more major. Um, I think the other thing is the continuation of the stimulus and borrowing. I think it's uh, important to point out that a lot of the people out shopping uh, have had their, their, you know, and this goes from the capitalists to the workers. Uh, let's just be honest here. This is the top 1% and it's the bottom 80%, right? Their, mm-hmm. their consumption power has been buttressed by stimulus, uh, either by what the Congress is doing or what the Fed is doing. Uh, and this actually, it is something we, we talk about in uh, this upcoming uh, interview that I had with, with JT, and that is, uh, we have this wonderful, uh, beautiful highway that we've built out of uh, borrowed money, uh, roughly some um, 17.9% of GDP but we're borrowing this fiscal year, which is you know giving us this huge, great, nice consumption road. But will it end <laughs> at the end of, I don't know, sometime in July, certainly at the end of July uh, on, the, uh, on the unemployment bonus front? Uh, Will it just suddenly come to a stop or, you know, whether we're going to have uh, more stimulus coming? How much can we borrow? Uh, All of these are questions we touch on uh, in my conversation with J.T. Taylor on politics. It lasts, I think, about an hour. uh, And I should say, yes, the video version does have slides. And if you become a Demography Unplugged subscriber, you can see the whole thing. Uh, But I think all of you will enjoy the discussion in any case. So here we go. Uh, my presentation this morning with JT Taylor. And as always, thanks for listening to this week's Demography Unplugged. Talk to you again next week. Good morning. Um, this is Neil Howe of Hedgeye's Demography Sector. Uh, we're going to be doing a discussion this morning with uh, JT Taylor, our political uh, expert and all around analyst. 
and I like to think of as insider down here in Washington, D.C. <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about the election of 2020, pandemic, protests, and polls. Uh, we're going to get started in just a second, but first of all, uh, let me uh, just pause for this brief disclaimer. Hedgeye is a Connecticut registered investment advisor. Hedgeye is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice to individuals. This research is not an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any security. It is made without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice, nor does it contain any legal or tax opinions. Source information is believed to be reliable, but Hedgeye is not responsible for errors, omissions, or the authenticity of source information. The opinions and conclusions are those of the individual speaking. This report is protected by U.S. and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipients. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. There's a fee associated with access to the support and accompanying materials. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. By joining this call or possessing these materials, you agree to these terms. Contact sales at hedger.com regarding access questions. So, uh, JT, I just want to set the stage here by saying we often like to talk about historic elections. Uh, but I think you can fairly say that 2020 is an historic election. We've got... Uh, a uh, pandemic lockdown recession hitting America, which is probably, you know, maybe the worst in a century. Uh, we've got a very, uh, uh, an increasingly polarized America. We've got a president who's uh, famous uh, for uh, pursuing polarization, you might say, pursuing wedge issues as a way of uh, sort of enhancing his support, uh, leading what has sometimes been called a populism of the right uh, takeover of uh, the Republican Party. And then you have the interesting specter of the Democratic Party, which on the one hand is trying to go a little bit toward the middle. But on the other hand, you have the George Floyd demonstrations, which actually suggests a certain populism of the left. Couldn't you get more exciting? Uh, could, you, could you ask for more interesting times? No, I mean, it's, it's, it's insane when you think about it and go back four months ago, just four short months ago, when the world is completely the opposite of where we are right now. The economy was hitting, you know, on, on uh, I don't want to say all irons, but the economy was strong. Uh, jobs were at record lows. The stock market indices were hitting record highs. Uh, and, you know, everyone was talking about the, uh, uh, the re-election of, of Donald Trump and the, the tailwinds were in his favor at that point. Now here we are four months later, post-COVID, post-racial uh, uh, unrest, as, as, uh, um, as, as you indicated, uh, and just a lot of uncertainty out there. And again, uh, the, the winds have shifted into uh, Joe Biden's favor. Think about this again. Back in March, before the pandemic hit, remember, everybody was talking about the threat of Bernie Sanders being the Democratic nominee, which led to the, the narrative of of Trump being reelected. Uh, here we are again. Biden uh, quickly uh, put that campaign to the end, to an end, and now here we are um, again with Biden as the nominee. Four short months, in fact, I think it's 139 days away from today uh, before the election. So a lot has changed in four months. And again, while we're going to talk today about um, where uh, the polls are today and where the races are today, a lot can change in. 139 days in four short months. Well, they, they certainly can, and I will say it's a little bit of an irony that as the economic mood of the country became a lot more uh, urgent, uh, you know, coming out of uh, February into March, the Democratic Party actually kind of moved toward the middle. Uh, isn't that interesting? Uh, you just yeah. saw primary after primary, everyone suddenly going for Biden, which I think as everyone regards as sort of the more centrist candidate. It's almost as though uh, this is too important. We can't go with, you know, we can't go with our favorite on, on more, to, more on the left. Uh, but then on the other hand, you've got the new demonstrations. You've got this new concern with, with uh, uh, racial divide, which, which I would actually argue, and I think what's interesting about the uh, uh, George uh, Floyd uh, protest is that when you look at where it's happening and sort of the uh, interracial mix uh, of the demonstrations, it's really bleeding into a little bit, if you, if you pardon the expression, but it's merging into a little bit of, uh, of the 1% movement. I think there's a lot of concern and inequality in America, particularly among the young people who are joining in the, in the demonstrations. So you do have a little bit of the, of, the, uh, of the radicalism there in a way. You know, it's always there. And I think uh, thus far, Joe Biden has shown a, a great deal of depth and skill 
at dealing with that part of his party. Um, uh, so, you know, I think uh, the last month or so have, have definitely been good for him. And meanwhile, you have Donald Trump, whose strategy seems to be getting a, a, a declining core more and more <laughs> amped up. Uh, about the election, I, you, you have to think that's a losing strategy for the long term. Yeah, I think in in in, in politics, you're supposed to grow your base, uh, and and uh, uh, I think since yeah. since day one, he's done nothing uh, to do that. And, and again, here we are in this post-pandemic uh, uh, environment, and uh, it feels as if with each and every passing week, he sort of has this checklist where he's. Uh, eliminating uh, um, any of these groups trying to sort of join his his um, his base, if you will. So um, it, it it is interesting. Well, there 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 are two strategies for any candidate, um, and they're a little bit opposed to each other. One is expanding your 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 base, moving into the undecided voters, and the other is energizing your core. Um, and I think it's it's typical of a of a populist. They just usually only think about energizing their core, right? I mean, yeah. that's what it's all about. That's what it's always yeah. been about. I think that's one of the reasons why um, uh, Donald Trump always had a grudging re- respect for Bernie Sanders. And actually, he's probably more afraid of facing Bernie Sanders because he understood uh, that kind of policy. Uh, I don't think he... Uh, it's hard for him to, to shift gears a little bit here. Maybe we want to go into the uh, some of our charts and just show some of our uh, poll numbers is that is that fair enough? Yeah, but before we go there, maybe just a word or two, uh, given your background yeah. in history, Neil. Maybe just a word or two on the segments you and I have been talking about for months now. Whether it's millennials, which we referred to a minute ago, uh, seniors uh, across the country, uh, women, and of course, independents are undecided. What trends are you seeing in those areas? Uh, and what you know, as you said. Are millennials going to be energized by the George Floyd movement here going forward? Well, I think that's the biggest one, is age. Um, You know, we've already seen in uh, 2016 and 2018, uh, first of all, and one thing you can say about Donald Trump is that he has usually solved the problem of political apathy in this country. I mean, we have seen voter turnout rates on both sides just climb steadily over the last two elections. In 2018, if you look at all eligible voters, uh, this was the highest midterm voting rate since 1914. Uh, And, uh, you know, as as we have spelled out before, but the biggest rise was in the under-30 population. It went from 20% to 36%. JJ, that's almost a doubling. I mean, you never see that, right, Uh, uh, from from these two by-elections. I think you're going to see in 2020 an equally sized step up even from 2016. And, of course, the reason why that's a, a great benefit to the Democratic Party is that this age group is voting some 67%, 68% to, to 32% uh, for the Democrats. And uh, it, that turnout of that age bracket is uh, means a lot uh, to the uh, Democrats' odds. Um, I don't know. I, you know, on the age situation, uh, uh, you're going to see you're going to see some rise among older age brackets, but it's not going to rise as much because they've always, you know, voted at a higher percentage. Um, and uh, I think the as we saw, particularly in 2018, you know, uh, Trump has a problem with. Uh, uh, kind of, you might say, middle class or suburban women. I mean, that's shown up. We had the by-elections in 2017, 2018, and 2019. All of those elections, you saw his weakness there. Um, and you can see uh, they're, they're actually interesting. There are a few races where you can actually see the Democrats are trying to uh, counter that. I'm, I'm thinking, um, you know, particularly about Kelly Loeffler, uh, you know, who's yeah. in, the, in, the, in the Georgia race. It's sort of their effort to try to go after the more, uh, you know, sort of the, what would you say, upper middle class, you know, suburban woman kind of thing. But, you, you and, and, you know, against Trump, Trump didn't want to go with, with Loeffler, right? He wanted to go with uh, more of the red meat candidate. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I, I think, but that's something I'm sure you want to talk about, is what kinds of candidates the Democrats are fielding 
and kind of how that's going to play out. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but uh, maybe we'll go to the battleground states, uh, the presidential battleground states on, on the next slide here. Um, and as you said, Neil, they are going to try to field both uh, in the Senate and the House and Senate and House races. Um, uh, the candidates can, who can win, of course. And, uh, and they've been successful at recruitment across the board. Um, and uh, again, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, on yeah, the can president, I just, better, yep. can, I, can I just pause here, uh, uh, JK? I just want to explain this chart for people that are looking. Yes. These orange states here are the battleground states. These were all states that Trump won in 2016, right? And yep. here's the important part. Trump won by 34 electoral votes. So he can only give up. I mean, I'm just trying to give, explain to people why this matters. You yeah. can only give up 34 of those electoral votes. So it kind of, you look at this map and you begin to see what he can lose. If he yeah. loses Florida, he can't lose any of the others. You know, you know what I mean? It, you kind of mix and match, right? Or he yeah. could lose uh, Wisconsin and Michigan, uh, but then he couldn't lose any of the others. Uh, so it, it shows you what the tight spot he's in, as we're going to explain in a second, because right now uh, Trump is losing in the polls in these states at the moment. At the moment. And again, if you go back to, I was uh, going back through some old notes, go back to June of 2016, Hillary Clinton had uh, a 49 to 37% lead over Trump in one poll, a 51 to 39% lead over Trump in another poll, taken almost exactly four years ago today. So um, uh, so, the, so as, as the reason we have this map up here and what you and I have been saying for months now is don't pay attention to the national polls. Uh, pay attention to the battleground states. And, of course, we have the six here in orange uh, where the focus and all the money will be going this fall. Uh, secondly, the green states, Texas, Iowa, Ohio, and Georgia, are what we call our expanded battleground states. And um, uh, recent polling there uh, uh, in Iowa has a race that's neck and neck. Ohio, I had written Ohio off. I thought that was going to stay a red state, uh, but I believe the latest polls have uh, have um, Trump running even or maybe up one or two points where he won by eight points in 2016. And, of course, Georgia. And not only do you have a presidential race uh, in Georgia, but you're going to have two Senate seats. We're going to get to that in a second, but you have two Senate seats in Georgia coming up. Um, as well. So a lot of activity going to happen in Georgia and a changing, as you can speak to, a changing uh, demographic uh, uh, in that state, as well as Texas. Again, I think Texas is pink, maybe bordering on purple right now. I think in, in four, eight years, it's going to be a, 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 a toss-up state, a true toss-up state, purple or and or blue state. Uh, polling right now has uh, Trump up by two points. Uh, so we put it in a mix. I mean, this is uh, this is ground that Trump, uh, Team Trump, didn't thought they were going to be playing on uh, three or four months ago. So when we talk about resources, you know, the, those resources were supposed to go into holding those six original states, the six foreign states. Now we're finding Team Trump uh, using uh, uh, money, and they do have a money advantage uh, in these other four green states. And potentially more as uh, as the season <clears throat> wears on. Yeah. Uh, so I think <clears throat> on the next chart we'll, we'll actually look at some of uh, I don't know. Uh, next chart, please. Be. Get it. Get it out. Yeah. Uh, you can actually look at some of the numbers here. So we have uh, these are these are futures markets. Uh, are these are these predicted? Uh, uh, JT. Yeah, some predicted, correct. And, our, and then we have, okay. uh, we have RCP averages, uh, RCP for those on the phone, are um, uh, real clear politics. It is sort of the average. They take a number of polls and average the polls across the board. So there have been a series of polls conducted in these states across, uh, in the past uh, uh, three to four weeks. And this is the average of those polls. And as you can see, I think in every state, let's go back to the, uh, uh, the original six states, which the battleground states, in every state but North Carolina, five of the six, Biden has a, 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 a significant lead. Uh, so um, in North Carolina, that is marginal. North Carolina is but 0.3% uh, 
so that is uh, that is uh, again a, a major yeah, major shift in the fortunes. You look at you look at Ohio; it's just point five, which is kind of amazing. Um, yeah, Ohio as well. And then again, we put you know, the expanded battleground states in there. I still think uh, 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 Texas; it, it's going to be tight. Uh, that Texas is going to stay red. Uh, but again, uh, and, you know, you can say a word or two on changing demographics in, 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 in Texas and Georgia, but they are rapidly favoring Democrats. I saw some staggering uh, uh, registration numbers in Georgia, uh, 800,000 new voters uh, registered in 2019. And then there was a, just before the primary two weeks ago, you had another 45 or 50,000 uh, uh, new registrants as well. So, um, and yeah. you can't say that they're all going to be Democrats, but that's where the trends are. Go ahead. Yeah part, yeah, part of what you need to understand is that some of these states are a little bit more urban than we think. Um, Arizona is a great case. If you talk to most people, they think Arizona is desert, it's pretty rural. It turns out Arizona is one of the most urban states in the country because everyone lives in, you know, Phoenix and a couple of other cities, right? Um, and similarly, Texas is is a southern state with about five major booming urban centers, and it's getting the disproportionate share of all the new population. So, we we you know part part of thinking about urban rural, I think, is good because there's no question that blue zone is more urban, uh, red zone is more rural. Yeah. Um, all right. What do we got next? I think yeah, and again, just just a brief briefly on Iowa as well. Yeah, um, and, and we talked about it again. Iowa, uh, I uh, I believe went for Obama back in 2012. It shifted uh, to uh, um, Trump in 2016. It's going to be an interesting race to watch again this year. An interesting state to watch by virtue of the fact that it should be red right now, given the trend, uh, but given. Um, uh, what's happened in the trade wars, you have a lot of, I, I don't think farmers are going to abandon Trump, uh, but given what's happened in, in the trade war with China, uh, the, 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 the farming sector in Iowa has suffered significantly over the past three and a half years. Uh, and uh, it, the, that is showing, I believe the latest polling had Trump up here. You have an average of, of I think it's 4.6, but I think there was a, a poll done uh, where you had him up by one percent, and that is uh, uh, that 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 was uh, I was somewhat I don't want to say shocked, but that was a uh, an interesting number to add to these. So again, when you talked earlier about the battlegrounds and the electoral college, uh, not only again does, does Trump have to hold those uh, six states, he's going to have to play in these other states. He ran the table last time, and that could happen again, as I said. Uh, uh, it, it, it just no one expected it, um, or I should say, very few people expected it. And um, um, the same thing can happen this time around. But again, the map is expanded. Uh, there's a lot more, uh, uh, I think, give for Biden to work with. Biden has a good anchor of, uh, of electoral college states. Um, and Trump is, is uh, uh, has is seen some atrophy there. The middle playing ground again is expanded. And again, yeah. could, could Trump go through and win every single one of these? Yes. But uh, again, the expanded race, expanded map uh, definitely gives uh, uh, Biden the advantage right now. And then just one yeah. second on, one, one minute on money. Um, you know, uh, I've been getting this question a lot. Does, does money matter in politics? Uh, you know, the, they're, they're, the, Trump's resources, Trump has four times as much money as Biden does in the bank right now. And um, and I guess we're gonna, we'll get to that in a minute again, Neil. But uh, that is not insignificant. They are going to be using that uh, to try to define Biden in the coming weeks and, and months. They did try that uh, um, during the uh, during the pandemic. They ran some ads in these battleground states, and yet Trump's numbers did not go up. Biden's numbers went up. So they had the reverse effect, and maybe no effect at all. People might not have been watching. Uh, but uh, we will be watching the money game as well. Yeah, well, you know, Donald Trump himself is very famous for pointing out the fact that he um, he won in 2016 was spending very little because of an extremely effective use of social media. Um, and and now that's that's the great thing about populism. You know, uh, you can play social media. You don't necessarily need a lot of paid ads. 
but it's so uh, it'll be interesting now that he does have money. <laughs> Republicans do have plenty of money. Uh, whether that will be their advantage, you know, Iowa is an interesting case because you have the uh, uh, Senate race there. Uh, Joni Ernst against Teresa Greenfield, and that's an interesting case of the gender issue. Uh, Joni Ernst has fallen in her approval ratings uh, recently, and men mostly favor her. <laughs> and then women will be going to this uh, woman challenger, which makes it very interesting. Uh, they're both sort of, you know, uh, ordinary Midwestern women, you know, who always talk about their Iowa Iowa roots. Uh, but it, it, there, there is a place where that, that's going to be interesting to watch, because that's the reason a lot of people are going to the polls there. Um, so why don't we go ahead? I, I just want to look at nationally a little bit. We have some polls yeah. during the national situation. Uh, you can show the next uh, slide, please. Okay, this is the futures market. You can just see how, uh, you know, uh, the betters markets are responding to this recent news. A lot of volume, you know, for, for those of our audience, I know there are many who love to follow markets. Uh, you can just look at the technicals, right? <laughs> a lot of volume shift, a lot of price changes there. Uh, and you can see uh, this is by far the largest lead that the Democrats have had over Trump, um, you know, since, you know, going all the way back to the beginning of this race. Um, you show the next, go on the next one. This is the approval rating. Um, now, as we're going to see in a minute, uh, uh, Donald Trump's approval rating is down, but it's not, you know, it, it was actually worse in the first year of his presidency. It was, it was really horrible, sort of his first uh, spring and autumn uh, of uh, 2017, uh, but it's definitely much worse than it was. Uh, coming out of the impeachment, and then you know, kind of basking in the in the in the glory of a, a, a red hot economy going into uh, January and February, the stock market hitting all time highs and so on. You can just see where that decline is. Uh, a big spread there opening up. Uh, next chart. Ah, yes, a little history. Now that's what we need, right, JT? Um, yes. This is, your, this is your sweet spot, Neil. I love this. Uh, so taking a little bit of a look of where, so these green lines are the same in every chart, but it's interesting to compare historically uh, where Trump is relative to other candidates all, all in their first term. So this is only first term of George w., you know, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton and so on. And you can see where they are. You can see that, yes, Trump is pretty low, you know, relative to earlier ones, but not necessarily the lowest. Um, Bush uh, was kind of low. He rebounded a little bit. Uh, he was able to rebound a little bit for his uh, second-term uh, election. Uh, Bill Clinton was always, uh, was certainly, you can see Bill Clinton, how low Bill Clinton was at the time uh, Newt Gingrich was taking over the House. I think that was the... Uh, the 94 election, right? Um, and then you can see how Bill Clinton revived. H.W. Uh, Bush was kind of a tragic story because his popularity revived hugely because of the Gulf War, but it was, but it was, uh, but it was too late. <laughs> so you can see the recession really beat uh, Bush Senior down, and, and the and the Gulf War victory came in too late for him, and Clinton beat him anyway. You can see that Ronald Reagan declined hugely during the, the recession uh, that hit. You know, remember the Volcker recession it hit in the middle of his presidency, but of course he hugely revived to do the morning again an America campaign. Uh, Jimmy Carter is just by far the most unpopular president. You just don't see figures like that, right? Yeah. Um, there was a reason uh, why Ronald Reagan was able to beat him. Okay, next next chart, please. And here, just a few other. I don't want to belabor all these. See, Nixon was by and large in his first term, uh, sort of pre-Watergate, was, was a relatively popular president. Lyndon Johnson, worn down by the Vietnam War uh, and the protests in 68, you can see he was down near Trump levels. Uh, JFK, reasonably popular while he lived. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, well, we like Ike, right? He was always popular. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Harry Truman... Uh, he didn't even consider running again. I mean, he was uh, he was definitely down there uh, toward the end of his, uh, you know, the, the Korean War and inflation and a lot of stuff that didn't sit well with Americans at the time. It's fascinating to me that Harry Truman has looked back on today as a much more effective president than he was regarded at the time. 
Um, any uh, comments you want to add to, to this trip down memory lane, JT? No, I just you know, I, I, I like the point of uh, um, the approval ratings. You, you know, the approval. I think George W. As you said, it was that was uh, sort of my heyday there. Uh, one was uh, one with just under fifty percent. Um, yeah, then you covered it, Neil. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on then. Let's go on to the next one. Um, uh, next chart, please. So this was a fascinating. I decided just to crib these. These are from the Economist, but it points out what a lot of people are saying, and that is when you look at uh, a presidential net job approval, Trump is bad, but he's not that bad. And you can see where he is down here. He's definitely on the negative side of things in this correlation you see here with people seeking uh, re-election, where he's much worse is looking at index of economic indicators, right? So a lot is going to depend. I think we all agree, uh, JT, a lot is going to depend on how the economy does uh, between 100%. now and November, right? I think, yep. I think that is probably the single biggest um, uh, variable, and you can see where he is. I mean, he's way down here. That's in the middle chart. You can just see uh, how much the economy, if, if you just look at the correlation with with presidents that are rerunning, um, and then... And then um, um, finally, you can see the, the, oh, this is something we should really talk about, and that's this chart at the extreme right. And that's the fact that due to the, um, the uh, Constitution and the Electoral College system, it gives an extra edge to uh, rural states, right? Because every uh, state gets an extra two electors uh, just based on the fact that they're states, right? So rural America already has an edge. So that already favors Trump uh, because the, you know, red America is rural America. But then he has another edge in that the, the big populist blue states are overwhelmingly Democrat. So uh, a lot of the popular vote is, in a sense, quote-unquote, wasted uh, for the Democrats because they just pile up these huge majorities in places like, you know, New York and California and Oregon and so forth. Um, and... That is an interesting fact, uh, JT, and maybe you can comment about that, about, about Trump, is that he, he wins because he has a bare majority and just enough states to matter. But what that means is that there is a possibility, if the overall mood of the nation switches against him, he could go down in a complete landslide, right? Because then all of these states turn the other way, and he has no, he has no sure base that the Democrats do. Uh, they don't have these enormous anchor states uh, on the on the Republican side. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, there, there might be a few exceptions that uh, uh, would, would stick with them uh, until the very end, but if the, if the tide is moving in that direction, uh, it could uh, it, it, it could be a, a, indeed a landslide uh, for Biden, so don't disagree with that at all. And I know in a second we're going to talk about the Senate it's going to be important to see that effect on Senate candidates as well. Totally. So. Well, that that completely anticipates our next topic. Uh, let's bring up the next uh, map, and you can kind of talk our way through this. So just first of all, just to uh, make people understand the color coding, uh, the um, the uh, I think this is uh, this is actually the Cook Political Report. We showed it just to. Give you an idea of what uh, what uh, you know. They're they're a highly reputable. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the Cook organization. But this is their uh, uh, look at uh, the 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 orange ones are what they call toss up. The red ones are, are likely Republican and and so on. You can see where they're all leading. Uh, Georgia has two seats open, and and maybe in a second you can talk about that. Uh, why they're two seats open in Georgia? But I want to quickly go on to the next one because this is a much more important chart. Why is it more important? Because it's our hedge-eye estimates. And <laughs> I, think, I think our estimates, uh, you know, and, and what we consider to be toss-up and likely is, is much more important. So maybe you can talk us through yep. a little bit, and, and then we'll go on and we have a, another chart looking at personalities. Yeah, and just to set the table, we have 35 seats up this year. Uh, it's typically, you know, thirty a third every year, 33, 33, and 34. Uh, this year we have 35, as Neil indicated. We have two races in Georgia. Uh, the, the 
Republicans have a lot more ground to defend. They have 22 seats to defend, and the Democrats have 13 seats. So that should give the Democrats an advantage. Uh, but again, three or four months ago, that wasn't so. Three or four months ago, nobody was really talking about the Democrats' chances of taking the Senate. Again, a lot has changed uh, since the beginning of the year, and now there are many states and many races in play. And it just you need a switch of three, a net gain of three for the Democrats, and a Biden victory for the Democrats to take over the Senate. Yeah, let me um, let me just. Let me, uh, JT, one second. I just want to interject here because I feel I have to kind of explain the chart to everybody. These states are in color are only the states which are likely to switch from Republican to Democrat or Democrat to Republican, right? And that's, that's why we're showing them. And, yeah. and the, the point is, is that, is that the, the Democrats need to get, if they, if they win the presidency, they need to get a, a 50-50 break. They need to win three states, right? And then they have the vice president to break the tie. So right. if, they, if the Democrats lose Alabama, which is likely, uh, and then they pick up these three, which we believe are tilting toward a, a shift to the Democrats, they need to take one of those orange states. Is, is that kind of putting the bottom line down? I mean, yeah, maybe. Yeah, so Alabama will likely switch. And, and just uh, to, to refresh everyone's memories, we do have a, a sitting Democratic senator that filled um, a, a former attorney general, former Senator Jeff Sessions' seat there uh, in a twist of fate. Uh, and many people followed uh, the Sessions saga in the Trump administration. Uh, Sessions is back and running in a primary, so it's not might not necessarily be uh, the candidate, uh, the Republican candidate in that state. But nonetheless, uh, he could make a, a return in Alabama. But again, it's a red state, a solid red state. There's no reason that that the Democrats should be holding that right now, other than the, the Republicans ran just an absolutely horrible candidate uh, uh, for that special election. Uh, so that's going to that's likely to turn red. If the states in play, again, in, 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 uh, three of these states are battleground states, Iowa, uh, Georgia, and North Carolina, um, all right now have races that are neck and neck. Uh, North Carolina sitting Senator Tom Tillis um, uh, has a one or two percent advantage over his challenger Cunningham. Uh, again, one thing to look at, as we alluded to earlier, is the fact that tons of money are going to be poured into these states. So if there is a wave uh, against Trump in these states, it could very well carry uh, the, the uh, uh, Democratic nominee uh, 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 for Senate and for some of the House races in, in, as well. So North Carolina is a true toss-up right now, probably favoring uh, the Democrats. Again, if, if the election were held today, Iowa wasn't expected. Um, uh, Iowa um, was, uh, as, as you said, Jody Ernst uh, had a healthy lead there, and all of a sudden that's now a, 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 a horse race. Montana is going to be interesting. I think it might be on some people's map, maps, but um, sitting Republican Senator Steve Gaines uh, has a race against uh, Governor Bullock. Governor Bullock is very Democratic. Governor Bullock is very popular in the state. I think he's going to get Dane to run for his money. And that's not even including the three we have here in blue now. We two are going to switch. They're almost, so the four I just outlined are true toss-ups, and I'll get to Jordan in a second. Um, the three in blue, as you see, Arizona. I don't see how Senator Mark McSally, the sitting Republican senator, recovers in that state uh, at this point. Um, astronaut Mark Kelly as a, a lead of 13 or 14 points in Arizona at this juncture against the sitting senator. I don't know that I've seen that in recent memory. In Colorado, you have Cory Gardner running against popular Governor Hickenlooper, or former Governor Hickenlooper, uh, and, and Gardner is well behind in, in most of those polls as well. Not, in, not, not uh, um, out, out of reach for Gardner, could he recover? Potentially, uh, Hickenlooper has had a couple of missteps recently, but still, that state is trending blue, uh, and I, I don't see Gardner recovering in that state as well. And then in Maine, um, uh, where you have a sitting senator, uh, Susan Collins, in the race of her life, uh, this is going to be really, really interesting. Uh, you know, she's, she's been a centrist Republican uh, her whole time up there. She's cast a number of votes. 
over the past couple of years or since Trump has been in office that have really riled up uh, women in the state. And in Maine is the state with the highest percentage, the nation's highest percentage of both female registered vote, voters and women uh, who turn out the vote. Uh, and they're angry. They're angry at her vote. Uh, many of them are angry at her vote uh, for Kavanaugh and for some of the uh, other Trump agenda items there. So I think uh, uh, Susan Collins is in real trouble in that state, and that's likely to switch to... Um, yeah, this is, a, this is a, uh, another woman-on-woman race, a little bit yeah. like Iowa, and, and, and you see the same split, you know, probably... Men may have a, uh, you know, go for, for Collins and women go for, for Sarah Gideon, right? Um, yes. and, and that would be interesting. Maine is also, by the way, the oldest state. So they're not going to be helped. You know, they're, they're, an, they're an aging state. Young people have been moving out of that. And, and as many people who live in the, in the northern part of Maine can attest, it's actually much of Maine is a surprisingly red zone area. Uh, so it's interesting. It has been historically a, a, uh, you look at uh, uh, Angus King, you just look at the people who represent it, they tend to be maverick mar- moderates, right? That may be one way to describe them, um, a kind of a mix of country and urban, uh, and that could be fascinating. I would say the big money is flowing, I don't know if you agree with me, but what I see, the big money is flowing into that main race, um, into the Arizona race, and surprisingly into another race you might want to talk about, and that's Amy McGrath taking on Mitch McConnell uh, in a yeah. race. And now, that's a race that uh, I don't think any uh, people, but here, I, I just one more thing I want to say about the choices of the Democrats in here, JT, and then, then I'll let you talk. And that is they all strike me as surprisingly moderate establishment people were like McGrath. They are, you know, Marine fighter pilots. I mean, these are, this is not your image of sort of your left-wing firebrand, right? You look at Cal Cunningham. You look at, you know, Steve Bullock or Mark Kelly. Uh, these are sort of your all-American types. Um, and I would say if, if, if I were the Republicans, I'd be a little bit worried by that. But anyway, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. No, no, that's fine. I mean, you're 100% right there. The, the Democrats were successful in beating back a number of progressive challengers in these key states um, and, and, and also uh, beating back uh, Bernie Sanders in the presidential. So, I, you know, I thought that they would uh, have a few more victories under their belt, and, uh, and they may do so in the House. Uh, but right now, um, as you said, the centrist candidates, for the most part, have worn out. Uh, very, very good candidates in these seats have worn out. I do think that, um, again, if we're talking about a massive wave here, it could carry. You know, we have a couple of states here, uh, like we have South Carolina, Kentucky, Texas, um, uh, and maybe Michigan as well. But the, uh, could a wave carry uh, those uh, incumbents and Republicans out of office? It's possible if it's of the magnitude uh, that, um, uh, that we've seen historically. Uh, right now, I still think that the, the Republicans will hold on to those seats. And just to go back to sort of recapping uh, the math here, um, the, the, the Democrats need three net wins. And right now on our map, we have the three blue ones. Those are, we'll consider those three net wins. The red state in Alabama goes back uh, uh, to um, uh, the Republican column. So that gives the Democrats two net wins right now. So they just have to pick off. Montana, Iowa, one of the Georgia races. One of the toss-ups. They just have to one pick up one of the toss-ups. That's, yep. that's all and, they need. Uh, yep. And just a, so, quick, just a quick note on what's happening in Georgia. Georgia has two races because there's a, a special election there. Um, uh, as you mentioned, Senator Kelly Loeffler uh, was an appointed senator uh, to fill the vacancy of, of Senator Johnny Isaacson, who resigned late last year. And uh, she's in, in, the, in, in the primary of her life. So what happens here is there is a regular scheduled Senate seat up. That's Senator David Perdue, who is going to have a run against um, uh, a guy named John Ossoff, who ran for the House, has great name recognition and a lot of money in the bank. And then we have to have a, another special election for that seat. And it's going to be interesting because we may not know, and I know that our, our listeners or viewers know this, but we may not know the outcome of the Senate until January of 2021, because the special election seat uh, that, that Kelly Loeffler holds uh, is a runoff. 
for the top two vote. If no one hits 50%, then there's a runoff uh, on January 5th uh, to determine, uh, with the top two vote-getters, to determine who's and going I to carry that seat. There, there may be at least two Republicans and two Democrats running in that, so it's unlikely to be a 50%, right? So I would the likelihood of a runoff is very large, which could lead to the point that the the leadership or the ownership of the Senate may not be decided until January, right? So yep. there it is. Um, please go on to the next uh, slide here. Uh, we're just going to, I think this basically just sums up uh, the kinds of things we've said. I don't know if you, there's anything new to add here. You can kind of see where the futures market is, uh, where the uh, real clear politics average is. Some of these states, uh, we don't really have good, you know, there's not been enough polling done yet. Um but there you kind of have it. Okay, uh, next next, uh, next slide, please. Um, this is our last big topic, and I, I do want to get uh, time for any questions we have. Uh, so, so please, um, um, uh, uh, you know, if you do have questions, again, uh, 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 QA at hedgeye.com. Um, yep. Maybe you can comment on the big question I think people are asking about politics, we wanted to say something about it. Uh, please bring up that chart again. I just wanted to show it here. This is the COVID stimulus. I think everyone is asking, what is the chance we're going to see another one? Now, you see these, you know, phase one through phase four. That's what's been passed so far. By the way, these cost estimates come directly as, you know, outlay, most latest outlay estimates from the CBO. But you can see <laughs> this is the HEROES Act which is this $3.5 trillion, uh, you know, monster uh, that's been passed by the House, uh, and it's just sitting there, right? Uh, nothing is likely to happen to it for now. But I think everyone realizes PPP is going to be running out uh, starting, actually, this month for some businesses. All of the uh, unemployment, uh, the, the uh, bonuses that's added by the federal government is going to be running out by the end of July, and a lot of people think that uh, this will be an economy headed full speed off a cliff unless, um, uh, unless the Congress comes together and adds yet more um, uh, deficit spending on what we've already done. The, um, Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, is, is you know, doing everything he can. Like central bankers everywhere in the world, they always want, uh, they always want uh, you know, the, the fiscal side to help them out. Uh, he's formally said that uh, more should be done. So what I want to know is, JT, what are the odds, how big it's going to be, and we can talk a little bit about how the politics of this are going to play out. Yeah, well, I'm trying to find my crystal ball here. Um, so, yeah, so the first, the timeline, uh, we're not looking at uh, beginning, I think, the, the debate until after the July 4th congressional recess. So when, when the Senate comes back after that recess, uh, they'll start with uh, with that debate. So sometime between July 4th and when they recess for the summer in early August is when we'll likely it, it, it middle to late July is when we'll see the next stimulus package. I think first the Republicans have to decide uh, uh, where they stand on this. Over the past couple of days, I'm just pulling up my notes here, over the past couple of days, um, you've got the administration saying they want a $2 trillion Bill, and then you've got conservatives in the Senate saying it's not going to exceed one trillion. Um, you have some talking about adding an infrastructure. The administration talking about adding an infrastructure component. You talk to Republicans on the Hill, they're like, "Uh, uh-uh, not so fast. No infrastructure. That's not going to work here." Uh, you also have a dispute over the extension of the six hundred dollar unemployment compensation that the uninsured have seen over the past couple of months. Uh, I believe it was Kudlow and a few others in the administration have come out very strong in recent days saying no extension of that. Yet Scalia, uh, Secretary Scalia at the Labor Department said, hey, look, we're looking at maybe look at reforming or some sort of reform version of that of that payment, so I think there are. I mean, just make sure there's nothing else here that the Republicans have to resolve a payroll tax cut. But the, the, the Republicans did propose a, a bonus for going back to work. I mean, that's, that's kind correct. of one of their counters, right? Right. Yep. Um, and, which and, is, I guess, you'd say more of a 
typical GOP supply side kind of <laughs> innovation. Yeah. Uh, and the last was the, the payroll tax cut. Uh, the administration has been talking about a payroll tax cut and a cap gains tax cut for, for months now, and it's resurfaced recently. Uh, that's falling on deaf ears with Republicans on Capitol Hill. So uh, the Republicans have to sort of figure out where they are first. We already saw that massive uh, BMS that the Democrats point out, that everything but the kitchen sink in it. Um, and uh, uh, so the Republicans will have to figure it out. But at the end of the day, you know what, I think it might be somewhere in between. I think it might be somewhere between one to 1.5 trillion. Um, I do think that for the first time, and, and Keith uh, McCullough uh, and, and I have been talking about this on our morning call um, over the last couple of months, but uh, yeah, where are the conservatives here? I think the conservatives are just starting to speak up and speak out. Uh, and are really wary of, of this massive price tag. You've seen McConnell um, really holding back on the, 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 the $3 trillion bill that the Democrats passed was three or four weeks ago, and McConnell's just sat in his hands uh, for this entire time. So, uh, and he's listening to the conservatives in his caucus. Let's see how this current stimulus works before we move on. Uh, so... Uh, the, the, the conservatives, I think, are going to play. The, that doesn't feel uh, like there are many left here in Washington, by the way. Uh, but conservatives are going to play, I think, a, a little more of a vocal role, role here uh, during this debate. Um, but uh, we're, we're definitely going to see something. Well, uh, be, uh, uh, Action will start after July 4th. Go ahead, Neil. My opinion is that there there are no fiscal conservatives left in Washington. Um, you know, really. Uh, you've, you've been got, talking to Keith and You've got a few principled people sort of that are out on the libertarian fringe. You've got the Ron Pauls and stuff. But let, let's face it. Uh, we're all words of the state now. Uh, businesses, uh, the bond market, uh, it's all getting subsidized right now. So everyone feels they need more. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to have the, the House who wants this huge new infusion, particularly to workers, low-income people. And you've got Donald Trump, the debt king himself. I mean, you know, Trump is going to want anything to get that stock market back up. He's going to want anything to leverage his victory in the fall. So I think Trump is going to be one of the biggest cheerleaders of more stimulus. you got Jerome Powell asking for it. And you expect a few principal fiscal conservatives in the Senate uh, to stand up to that type, I think this is a way where I think it might play out. Trump gets them together and he basically says, we'll give both sides everything you want. So we'll give the, the Senate can have their liability, you know, they want liability protection for their businesses. Yep. We have huge business bailouts and we'll add up everything else. What about a $4 trillion bill? And by the way, that uh, I think we're already up to, I, I always track the CBO's latest estimates, this year we're up to a 17.9% of GDP deficit, right? We could easily get up to maybe 30% of GDP, you know, bleeding in a little bit the next fiscal year. That would put us up to the deficit we ran, I think was around 30% of GDP in 1943 at the height of World War II, where we're waging a total war against global fascism, uh, isn't that remarkable, right? Um, and I think the question a lot of people are going to ask is, uh, if we spend like this, given this kind of challenge, what have we got left for another challenge? I mean, you know, you sort of begin to put it into perspective a little bit, You've got the argument on the other side. I'm sure the Fed will make that argument that as long as interest rates are zero, money's free, right? So why not borrow us? No, it's no burden on anyone, even future taxpayers. But, of course, I always make the argument that if interest rates stay at zero forever, that means the economy is never going to grow again. Yeah. So that's not a future any of us going to want. Uh, I, I think these are these are big decisions, and I, I think the best uh, metaphor for Trump right now is uh, he's a guy who's pulling his goalie. You know, to use the hockey metaphor, right? It's all offense now. I mean, you know, if, if things go bad, I'm going to lose anyway. So let's just go for broke here. Um, and I can see that a little bit in, in kind of his uh, his incentive structure. I, I don't know. What's your opinion on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that uh, I think he will push for more. I do think that those individual checks that go out with his name at the bottom of them are something that he's very fond of. Uh, so I think that he is going to push and push and push uh, to make this a, a, a larger bill than, than most Republicans want. I think that's why uh, you saw Navarro come out over the weekend talking uh, uh, about a $2 trillion package as opposed to $1 trillion. I, I can't believe we're talking in, in, the ter- in terms of trillions right now, as you said earlier. But uh, the, the contours uh, of the bill, um, is the final word on this, is, uh, will be, as you said, there will be some component of uh, a liability, uh, liability shield, shield, if you will. The, Democrat, uh, the Republicans uh, are saying that no bill will move forward without that component. Now, state local governments, uh, uh, unis, are really running out of money, and we're right at the cusp of the state budget's uh, cycle starting on July 1st. Layoffs are already in the works uh, across the board, so you have to see a state and local component to the next bill. Uh, there's going to be a, another uh, unemployment insurance extension. I don't know what's going to happen with that payment, uh, but uh, state unemployment numbers uh, in, in comp will continue, uh, likely continue, and of course, whatever type of tax relief or upfront check or incentive to return to work, I think, will play a major role in the next, so, uh, in the next bill. So that's, those are the four. That's sort of the contours of it. Let me give you a couple of quick questions they're getting in. Um, yep. and I know we, we talked about some of these. One is uh, mail-in ballot funding. Is that going to be a deal-breaker in the stimulus bill? In other words, are, are Democrats going to be insisting on something? You know, they're, they're really worried about that. I, I actually think it could be. Uh, that is one. There are a number of deal breakers, but that could be one of them. Uh, you know, we saw a lot of discrepancies and, and unevenness in Georgia last week, uh, and um, I think the Democrats are going to do everything they can. It, 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 it's, it shouldn't be a partisan issue, by the way. Uh, I think you have many Republicans uh, across the 50 states, many Republican governors who are pushing for more funding here and doing and trying to expand uh, mail-in ballots. Uh, excuse me. Uh, right. So uh, the Democrats have money in their package for that. They're going to want more. Uh, some Republicans will go along. It could be a bone of contention, uh, given what, what what Trump has said about mail-in balloting over the course of the last three or yeah, four that's, months. That's, that's actually one thing that Trump may not want to back down on. I think he would give almost anything else away except something that would actually, you know, impact the election. Um and then uh, uh, one last thing, maybe you can comment. I know we're running out of time, but um, is there anything on the House that we need to look at, uh, the House of Representatives? I mean, no one's really paying much attention. I think everyone's assuming that it will remain, uh, you know, in the Democratic hands. But is there are there any interesting races or anything there to look at? Not, not really. I mean, just one quick second on there are a couple of primaries. We said earlier that progressives have lost a lot of ground uh, during primary season in, in the uh, uh, on the, in some of the Senate races, uh, and, and as you said, the, the centrists, the moderates, have won out. Um, there are a couple of progressives that are challenging uh, incumbent Democrats right now. Elliot Engel of New York is one of them, uh, so he's in, a, in for the race of his life. So a couple of progressives could win um, uh, against incumbent um, uh, Democrats. And I only mention that because it will pull the, the Democratic Party, potentially pull it further left. But there doesn't, at this point, in this stage of the game, the House doesn't seem to be in play. The House changing hands doesn't seem in play. It does feel to me and others as if they actually may increase their numbers a bit, and even more if we're headed toward a wave. But right now, um, there are there's, we still have this narrow 20 to 30 seats um, undecided or toss-up category, and I think that the Democrats are already start, starting with a firm base of 215, 216 seats that are either blue or leaning blue uh, that we could consider in their column. So they could actually build on their majority right now. I don't see their major, their majority uh, imperiled in, in at all. And secondly, uh, they've done a, a remarkable job at fundraising. Um, um, over the past couple Republicans as well. Republicans have done quite well, but the incumbents, what we're looking at, the incumbents have done a really good job, especially this 20 to 30 universe in these districts where Trump won. 
Um, so uh, those are the ones to watch again. Uh, could a wave, a wave could go either way, but right now the wave is trending blue. And so I see no change. What about um, people sometimes ask about, uh, you know, the gang of four, AOC, uh, Elon Omar, uh, Rashida Talali, but uh, I understand AOC is actually having some competition for housekeeping. Is it, it, you know, these are very high profile, uh, relatively young, uh, you know, uh, kind of, you, you'd have to say, left, left wing of the party. Yeah. Um, and they've tried to recruit and, and support a, a number of, uh, of progressive candidates, and they have failed, with the exception of uh, uh, clearing a path for a, a challenger to Elliot Engel, as I said, in New York. Um, so, you know, they, they're, they are going to continue. Um, you know, I know Biden met with um, uh, Ocasio-Cortez a number of times, uh, trying to get her on board and support, uh, supporting him after the, uh, after the Sanders uh, collapse, if you will. So they're going to continue to be vocal. I will say Pelosi has been um, uh, somewhat successful, if you ask me, at keeping them at bay for the past uh, 18 months. I, I find that I thought there would be more. I don't know what goes on all the time behind the scenes, uh, but I thought that there would be, they would be more disruptive. And maybe there's more disruption to come if they can increase their numbers. I, well, you know, she, you know, Pelosi yielded on the impeachment, which is probably a bad idea right. for the Democrats. I agree. Uh, so, but from a lot uh, yeah. yeah, we'll 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 see how that goes. A couple of big things. We don't have time to talk about this, but it's something we do want to come back to. A uh, huge question, and that is who more than more important than usual is who Joe Biden is going to choose uh, for his vice presidential nominee. We don't have time to talk about it now, but. JT, uh, it's been great talking to you, and hopefully we can get on again and, and talk about that and, and, and where the stimulus is and all that stuff next time we, we go at this. Yeah, we'll be back in, we'll be back in July, hopefully July, maybe August before they recess and, and, and go around the horn again. Love it. That's great. All right. Thanks, all of you, for joining us, and um, uh, it's always, always a pleasure to uh, talk with JT on this. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Demography Unplugged. If you like what you've heard and want to dive deeper, I've got some good news for you. I'm offering a special research service for subscribers. It provides unique insights you won't see anywhere else. Deep dive analysis, charts, videos, and much more. It's designed to help professionals and investors uncover hidden trends and critical developments driving world markets and economies. You can learn more about it online at www.hedgeye.com or you can just Google Demography Unplugged. You can also follow me on Twitter at HowGeneration. That's H-O-W-E Generation. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.